Hello friends, Jim Digby here, the president of the Event Safety Alliance. In this very special episode of the Event Safety Podcast, and in collaboration with our friends at the Black Theater Caucus and Showmakers, we open a very meaningful dialogue around the largely undiscussed topic of emotional safety in the workplace. This is a super important topic, folks, and we hope you'll tune in. Thank you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for what we believe to be another important conversation around the idea of safety in the live event workplace. Um, I have two very distinguished guests here with me today. I have Megan Holmes, who is a human and a live event leader. And I have Christopher Maxwell, who is also a human and the founder of the Black Theater Caucus. And myself, I'm Jim Digby, and I am newly understanding what it means to be a servant leader. Um, Megan, would you mind introducing yourself for the audience, please? Yeah, my name is Megan Holmes, and uh, I uh, live in, in Los Angeles, California, and uh, I've been in the live event industry uh, for over 25 years now, um, working in touring and local events, and um, I have a wonderful job at a company here in Los Angeles called Eighth Day Sound. We were recently acquired by Claire Global, another wonderful company. And uh, we're merged under one roof in Sun Valley. I do sales and some uh, personnel and general management for the company. Thank you, Megan. <laughs> and there's so much more to you than that as well. But we'll maybe we'll dig yeah, into I'll some of that. Try and boil it down to like, you know, a quick one. And in all fairness, Megan and I have spent a few shows working together on the same stage, and um, it's always been a professional treat as well as a personal one. And it's my pleasure to introduce you to our new friend, Christopher Maxwell, who uh, during the COVID, like many of us, needed to, needed to be active and to, and to try to cause solutions. Christopher formed the Black Theater Caucus. Christopher, would you mind introducing yourself, sir? I don't mind at all. Uh, hi, Robert Christopher Maxwell, but everybody calls me C-Max because it's less of a mouthful. Uh, originally from Little Rock, uh, I'm a stage manager who lives here in Harlem, New York, the, uh, the Lenny Lenape lands here in Harlem, New York. Uh, as you mentioned, because there was a lot of, there's a lot of social justice work happening in the, in the, in the country during the pandemic, I decided that I wanted to find a way to uh, improve the world in the small bubble that I had influence in. And because I'm a stage manager, because I uh, work uh, in equity and because I live in New York, I decided to figure out ways to uh, make theater more accessible and uh, more welcoming to African-American stage managers and actors. And through that vein, uh, I created a non-for-profit organization that helps create programming to sort of create, to increase the, the visibility of, of, of black stage managers and actors all over the country. Thank you, C-Max. And you're having some success, I understand, yeah? A little bit, a little bit. Uh, we're working, so we're having all kinds of different initiatives. So we are, my own personal initiative is 101 Black Stage Managers, where I'm identifying African, uh, excellent Black Stage Managers all over the country, and actually in Canada and the UK, uh, and creating a, a platform so that other people know that these stage managers exist. So you can't ever say you don't know a Black Stage Manager. I know tons of them. So if you're ever curious, follow the Black Stage stage manager uh, on Instagram and on Twitter. We are also uh, creating programming uh, for actors and designers and directors so that when you are getting out of college, you have other resources that are available to you that help you find your way through the industry. Uh, a lot of us have found that there aren't a lot of resources and a lot of uh, bridges to the professional world. So Black Theater Caucus is out here trying to uh, create connections for other young artists so they can end up in places that they want to. We're also decentralizing Broadway because Broadway is not the end all be all to theater. And one of our missions is trying to locate other African-American artists out in the country and bring them some unity and create a place where they can all sort of gather and share resources uh, and also talk about things that are important to us in our community. I think that's incredibly important work, uh, C-Max. And, and as you already know from our previous conversations, anything we can do to help, we're here to support, uh, even if that means stay away. So, <laughs> um, I, listen, I've taken some, I've taken the liberty of preparing some open uh, opening remarks here, uh, only because I think the subject matter we're going to attempt 
to tackle here today, that of emotional safety, um, has has a, a, a seriousness to it and an impact to it that many of us may not be thinking about. And I can I can speak for uh, myself when I heard reference to emotional safety, uh, as you'll hear in the remarks over the last few weeks. I was kind of lost. I, I didn't really understand what the ESA wasn't doing or what I wasn't doing uh, or how I did not understand this term. So if bear with me while I read through these opening remarks that I hope will set up our conversation here today. Um, and, and then I look forward to digging in. Uh, for the entirety of the Event Safety Alliance's journey, we focused on the breaking the chain of causation that leads to bad things happening in the event environment. Historically, our work has been focused on the physical of safety concerns that potentially impact us in destructive ways, in physically destructive ways. Stage collapses, severe weather impacts, crowd management concerns, major incident disruption, the sad truth of active shooters and bombings and things of that nature, and unsafe conditions on the worksite. These things have made up the kind of nuts and bolts um, uh, things that the Event Safety Alliance has addressed. And our goal has been always to break that chain of causation through getting subject matter experts to give us uh, input on them and teach us about them, create education around them, create awareness around them, and in some instances, create standards uh, around them uh, and best practices or reasonable practices. That's been our, that's been our mainstay. But in the recent weeks, over conversations of what's going on in, in our world these days and COVID and coming back to work and this recognition that we're, um, we're all kind of emotionally scarred in conversations with people like yourself, C-Max, and with you, Megan, I, I've heard repeatedly this idea of, of emotional concerns, emotional safety, and, and why isn't the Event Safety Alliance addressing emotional safety? And I don't know that we are not, but I would also say that we haven't yet. Uh, it, it's that emotional safety wasn't something we considered. It was the obvious thing right here in front of our face and we weren't focused on it. We were focused on the things we were seeing fall down around us. It's unfortunate that we haven't been focused on it. Uh, it is as important as anything else with respect to safety that people need to feel, A, that they're safe in their workplace uh, B, that who they are doesn't impact the feeling of safety. It, it's not fair for anyone in a leadership role or in a, in a co-worker's role to judge someone or, or make someone who's not like them feel out of place or, or unsafe or threaten them. Who are we? You know, I, my story is my story. I came to be who I am today because of the things that happened to me in my life. None of those things apply to anyone else that I work with. How dare I or someone like me uh, impose an unsafe feeling on someone because I'm not comfortable with the way they are, or the way they behave. It's just not right. So we're here today to talk about these emotional safety concerns, those which impact a person's emotional well-being or their feeling of safety. And it's become incredibly obvious that we have so far and far too long overlooked and downplayed this category of safety risk and we can't do that any longer. Soon, most of us are gonna be coming back out of our pandemic-induced stasis and back into the workforce. Of the many concerns we have is this recognition that COVID has degraded our emotional well-being uh, for our entire community, not just ourselves, but everyone throughout the community and every, in every corner of the event safety, of, of the event community has had some manner of impact to their emotional safety uh, because of COVID. So as a result, we're gonna go back to work in this heightened category of concerns, this heightened emotionally sensitive place, in this rawness and almost facing PTSD. Um, it's, it's not war-induced PTSD, but it is seriously a consideration that what we're coming back to work with is a form of PTSD. And it's no less important that we recognize that and make room for that as leaders and as coworkers. We have to be recognizing that we're coming back to work scarred and the things that bothered us before might really bother us now because we have so many things we've tried to encounter over the, we've been forced to encounter over the last year and a half. 
So our goal here today, if there is to be an outcome, is to begin to provide a perspective that will hopefully break this chain of causation brought on by emotional safety, to, to find ways to heighten people's awareness that their words have meaning and that their words create an unsafe environment. And that if we're truly, truly compassionate and empathetic to the humans around us, there's no room for us to create an unsafe environment or an emotionally unsafe environment. So with that, Megan, I would hope that maybe you could open up the conversation and tell us about what, what worldview has, what shaped your view on this category of concern and, and, and where are you now in a post or a hopefully soon to be post COVID world, but this isn't really related to COVID because this problem has existed forever um, where, where folks have come to work and felt unsafe because of who they are. Tell us about it, Vegan. You're muted. Sorry, babe. <laughs> and I didn't just say babe. Sorry, Miss Megan. You're <laughs> muted. <laughs> uh, you know, I started in the industry a long time ago, it feels like now. Um, and, you know, there weren't as many women doing, in specifically doing audio. Um, there still aren't. Only 5% of the live sound industry are, are women. Um, and, you know, I kind of got stonewalled into varying departments when I was a stagehand with people not really recognizing that I, I wanted to do audio and I had to keep really talking about it a lot to get to kind of break out of stereotype. So a lot of the time the women that were in the industry and the women that were successful were lighting people. So, and they were, a lot of them were designers too. And I wanted to be a sound engineer. It's really hard to kind of just hold your ground and, and push through that kind of, you know, mentality of we're going to take you and we're going to put you in this little box. And, you know, we like being looked at as individuals, you know, I think it, there's a part of, of all of this where, you know, we need to see the human that is existing. But I also feel that we have to work as a community to change things. We have to work as a team. So, and, and we already work as a community. Every production is its own little village. You know, every single thing in what CMAX does in, in the touring that you do, me working for a vendor and working in an office and then going on site and doing a particular show. Those are, these are all cultures that I travel in. And I wanted more and more when I got into positions of power where I could decide who was going to be on the show or where I could decide who was working around me. I wanted to be around people who just wanted to work hard and have a good time and didn't want to create a negative situation, whatever that was, whether it was hazing the young kid because when they were younger, they got hazed or talk shitty to, excuse my language, to a, a, a you know woman that was while working around them or behind their back if they were a stage manager or in a position of power and, and bashing them in some way. I didn't want to work around people like that. So the second I was able to, I started cherry picking the people that I wanted around me because I wanted, I didn't want anybody to feel the way that I had felt and the way that I had been made to feel in terms of just the limitations, let alone all of the misogynistic comments and homophobic comments that I put up with. Um, I just didn't want to surround myself with that kind of energy. And I was very lucky to be in a position where I could choose who I worked around. Um, but it's still, a, a, it feels like a never ending journey because you know, I work for a company that I, I felt was was fairly inclusive, you know. I work for a company now that I feel is moderately inclusive. It's for me to work on changing that and, and help my 
the, the senior people at my company, the people further up the food chain for me to understand that they need to work on their inclusivity. But I can also control my part of it too. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a long road for all of us in the end. Um, and some of us are, some of us get tired of having to be the one that is saying something all the time. So I want to thank you, Jim, for at least being the person that's willing to say something because you're in a serious position of power. You're a white man and you, you have so much privilege and so much ability to work with other white men to see uh, what they create and what kind of culture they create. So thank you for at least be, trying to be that open person and at least see the world through somebody else's lens. You know? Well, thank you, Megan. It, it really, uh, you know, my goal or my, my wish for the utopian world I wish we all lived in is that we can see each other as humans, right? And I, and I value our friendship and our decades long relationship because it's never been anything less than honest. And, and that was, if I messed up, you were honest. Uh, and uh, if I needed you to get out there and do something, you were honest. You got out there and did stuff. And, and I think, you know, what, what, what pains me so much is that the arts of all places, the arts of all places has always represented the great tapestry of the world. You know, I'm, I've been in it since I was a little wee lad. And it's because of every culture, because of the exposure to every culture that comes and finds themselves at the arts, that it's been, it's been so great. You know, I, I can be with people who who express themselves in all manner of ways. And typically you find that freely in the arts community, but it, and it pains me to hear that or to know that we're still doing it wrong behind the scenes. Uh, and, and with any luck today, we can start making, we can crack open that message and, and maybe uh, create, raise some awareness. And I thank you for participating in the conversation. It's, I'm sure yeah. it's, it's not easy for any of us. Uh, and I wish that I could change my old white man this. Uh, my, um, you know, I'm trying to think of ways where I can teach my children to not just see the community we're in, but let's go to other communities and respect everybody for it. Um, C-Max, uh, please share with us your journey, if you will, or what brings us to this conversation today and the impact. That, wow, that's such a loaded question. Uh, so many things. Uh, my particular journey is very similar. I'm, I'm one of those like lifer theater people. I was always in school. I, you know, I did theater really early on in life. So I've always sort of been in the world of theater. I never, just because of being a queer black person in America, I never felt strong enough to be an actor. Like I didn't felt, I didn't, I never until, you know, later on in life felt that I had a story that I could tell and I wanted to be in front of other people. I always just sort of hated that, but I always loved theater because it was always a place that like every odd person that I knew could go and there's a place for them and people were welcomed and felt friendly about that. So for me, theater was always that kind of place. Like I used to play, in the band and the band was sort of like the military. If you've ever seen Drumline, it was very much like that. And I didn't like that world of being in the military and I didn't like that aspect of performance, but I love the idea of being with a group of people that, you know, I'm an only child. So being with a group of people that, uh, I am sort of an only child, I, being with a group of people that performed and loved what they did every day and going and doing that kind of activity always uh, always appealed to me. So I was always one of those people that sort of tried to follow that. I knew going into college that I wanted to go into theater. I didn't know how to figure it out, but I was like, I'm just gonna do it and go and you know figure this out. I double majored in sociology so that I could have a backup job. So I could, in case I wanted to, I could be a teacher or something like that. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll teach sociology. I'll get an extra degree in case this theater thing doesn't sort of work out. Um, and so, you know, when I was in Chicago, I left Arkansas because Arkansas sucks for theater. I was in Chicago because Chicago was a more welcoming place for a queer person. I found a theater company that uh, told the kind of stories that I liked, Helena Handbag. They were opening and welcoming to my queer blackness and they had no problem. So for me, 
theater was a place where, you know, you go and you find a family, you do it, you love it, you know, you can get a real job and then you can also do theater at the same time. You can do that and have that balance of like making money and surviving, but then also enjoying storytelling and doing it, you know, with a bunch of your friends. Like, so that was sort of my life in Chicago for about six years. But when you start to get older, your bones start to crack, you, you know, start getting a little older and things and you need a little bit more security in your life. And there wasn't sort of that accessibility to me in Chicago. And I wanted to be able to, um, I wanted to be able to find a better way to be able to make theater. And so for me as an African-American from the South, I had to go more education and I also had to join the union because those two ways, those were the, the easiest ways for me to find my way into some sort of stable lifestyle, right? So one, getting an education, more education when you, you know, having a BA at that particular time, everyone had it, it's not a big deal, but also in theater, no one cares about you having a BA, you have to have sort of the experience, right? But like when you're a black person, you have to have all of the things and the experience at the same time. So I was trying to like figure out how to do both of those things. So I couldn't get into teaching in the uh, Chicago public school. So I got into grad school at Columbia um, and that sort of changed my world. So I, it, it changed the world in that I love doing theater, but it was very emotionally difficult to live in a world that was dominated by white people and that were dominated by straight white people who didn't really care about all of this. I got into Columbia because I'm a great stage manager and I'm good at what I do. Uh, and obviously the diversity looks good on them, but the school itself is not designed for stage managers. So they don't make it safe for us. They make it safe for directors and actors. And the work that we do as stage managers at that particular institution at the time was focused on service to other people instead of in service to ourselves. So we are trying to, as new stage managers, learn how to be leaders and learn how to lead a room. But then we're also having to deal with the emotional chow chow of going with other people who are also on the same journey. And so when you're a stage manager, you're forced to be the adult in the room, even if you are still trying to learn yourself. And so it was one of those, it, it's always that sort of uh, struggle for stage managers as we're trying to grow, we also have to sort of be the adults for everyone else and sort of monitor everyone's safety. And so if we are not even as, if we're not educated with all of the tools and tips that we need to make that room safe, we ourselves can't even do that job, right? Like we would be incapable of creating that emotional safety for some other people. So that's sort of part of the journey that I have been on trying to one, increase the knowledge and the visibility of stage managers so that people know we have a job that we're important, but also we have, there are things that we need to know about how our job works and how to increase the, um, the safety in the room. So as leaders of the room, I'm also, as an educator who's also trying to teach stage managers how to be more aware of the other people that are in the room as well as you know just uh, aware of the emotional safety that's in the room aside from just like making sure that things are spiked and that you know that we know exactly when calls are coming in because I think the thing that we have learned in this particular space is that it's not enough just to have a safe room like it's not enough to to physically be safe I feel like one of the things that we are learning is that when you're in a system of white supremacy it's not always safe for people of color or queer people to say something about the way that things are being done that makes them uncomfortable or that makes them feel unsafe. So instead of what happened, instead of us speaking out, we just walk away and then everyone goes, why isn't this space diverse? It's because all of the people of color or the queer people and all of the other people, the neurodivergent people, all the able people, they just wanna walk away because they don't wanna have to spend their, they don't wanna have to spend the emotional labor trying to change the system when, you know, the people up top should understand that, you know, there are differences and different uh, needs that people have that are out there. And so that's sort of the work that I've been sort of doing, which is why I've very been very happy to start this conversation with you, Jim. Thanks, C-Max. Can you describe for us, because I think that there are I know that there are people out there like me who may not have recognized in the past when my behavior resulted in an unsafe feeling. Um, and there may be people out there who, who, who lead through this unsafe practice because they think wrongly that that's a way to preserve their leadership. So I think it's important to, to put some description to 
what is it that what is it that causes an emotionally unsafe environment for you when you show up at work? What are the what are the the things that are are giving you that? Oh gosh, nope, I'm not feeling good here today. Help us understand that. Uh, leadership that sees everything that's black and white, right? Leaders leaders who do who do not take the advice and the opinions of the people that are around them and only that are very dogmatic in the way that they lead things. Because what this means is if I, as a, a general worker, if I come into your store and I think there is a more efficient way of doing something and you as a leader shut me down and say, no, that's not what we're gonna do. I don't feel like I have a room in, your, in the business that we're working to sort of help make improvements. Right. And as a leader, we should always know that we don't always have all of the answers. We have a lot of them and we have a vision of what we'd like to do. But as a leader, we also have to understand that there are other people who see things that we don't see. Right. That have other things that might work out. But also, you know, you might learn something from someone who's a little bit younger than you are or who has a different kind of experience than you do. And so those you know, people who immediately will shut down or who are not open to ideas and answers and who want everything to sort of be in a specific way. That idea of perfectionism, uh, those are kind of places and people, those, those sort of traits are kind of things that are red flags for, you know, for emotional safety spaces. Thank you, buddy. Um, Megan, same question. Describe for you, describe for us, if it's comfortable for you, examples of you just the just the behavior that has just really been no this isn't going to work out for you and but you but you, then you find yourself in a, in a state of well i have to stay and do this job but now i'm going to stay and do this job and i'm not going to be feeling very safe you mind giving us a, a peek at that um yeah i think you know if i walk into a room and, and i think c-max really nailed it um and the person that's creating the situation, let's say, whatever it is, uh, I'll use I'll use what I'm most familiar with. Whoever the producer of the event is that I'm working on, or the, and the production team, the people that are basically in charge. If if that group of people are a bunch of of white men, I see that as a red flag. And the reason I do is because I think in order for me to really truly feel comfortable, I need to see a little something different. Just so just give me just give me one or two people that are different from that. Or else I'm I'm wary already. I'm wondering, you know, why? What is it about this group of people and and why why aren't they more inclusive why is why is it just this way you know and i i actually have had a lot of when i've tried to bring this up to certain people they always talk about the women with me well we have women we have women that work for us we have women in positions of power and it's like cool it's not all that i'm worried about i i want to see i want to see the representation of the world in front of me when I do things. And if I don't see that in some way, then I'm not, I'm not feeling like I'm going to have a voice, that I'm going to feel included, um, that I'm a participant. I, that's a culture I don't wanna be a part of. I don't wanna be part of something that's super limited like that. Um, and, and that, that's just blunt, like straight to the point, like this is, and you know, I, I'm, I, it's something I wrestle with a lot because we live in a, a white male dominated industry, uh, unfortunately. And uh, though there are so many people that really care about changing that and growing that and, and making that shift um, it's still a recurring theme. Um, it, it, it's, yeah, I feel like this is, this is one of many, many, many conversations that need to happen in order to start helping people you know, unpack it a little bit. And 
the thing that I'm worried about too is that the way in which people get called out when they're not being inclusive or when they say something racist or sexist, um, you know, if we call somebody out like that and we shame them, we're not changing them. We're not helping them see anything different. They're likely gonna get more rooted in whatever it is that they, they think they were doing right. Um, they'll dismiss it as they were just joking and, and all of those things, which is a bit been a common default lately. I was just kidding, you know, I was just joking with you. It's like, no, dude, like, yeah, sorry. That's not, that's no longer an acceptable reply to me, you know? Um, so these, these behavior traits, uh, the, the purpose, the, the intentional behavior traits of this type of leader or these type of coworkers that we're talking about are ones that are rooted in possibly uh, a lack of understanding of how to see the other person's perspective. It could be rooted in hate, uh, the systemic hate that we, we all are living with these days. Um, how, how do we, how do we begin to change the culture? How do we, like I you, look, I, I can look back and see see actions of my own over the years and think, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Oh, oh, that's awful. And and have slowly but surely, uh, I think, attempted to be someone different and someone who recognizes that this is an issue and and in in this instance wants to do something about it. But how do we cause others who have it in their heart to be to, to change, to grow, to whatever, recognize the behavior is not acceptable. What are the, what are the tools? What, are, what, what can we do? We have to make a pact. Everything we do right at the beginning. You and I are gonna to tour together and you and management sit down and say, we're actually gonna put on paper and outline who we are and what, how we're gonna be and we're gonna give it to everybody that tours with us and everybody that works with us. And we want them to sign it and they need to read it and understand. And the second that that person does something that's not in line with that agreement, with that pact that you've all made as a, as a group of people, as a group of humans traveling around together, that that gets dealt with. And not always is it comfortable for somebody like myself to call out somebody being a misogynist? I might not feel comfortable doing that, but I should feel comfortable going to whoever my next person or supervisor, whoever they are, I should feel comfortable to be able to go to them and say, I just saw this, it was so incredibly wrong, please handle it and no, in my heart that you're going to go deal with it. That's, an, that's a pact we all have to make together in order for this to evolve. And we have to start helping each other get better. It's like I, I said, um, kind of when we were all talking before the, this, this started, my partner calls me out, takes me to task, explains why. Um, not perfect. None of us are, and we're all gonna have moments of making a bad choice in some way. My hope is, is that in kind of making this pact with each other, that we help each other get better and stronger and more aware of, of the world around us and the people that are working with us. You know, that's, I think that's how we shift it. I think it's gotta be a, an agreed upon list of ethics code of conduct yeah because and here's the thing too what makes me comfortable in a room what makes jim comfortable in a room what makes c max comfortable in a room all three different things right we can agree that we don't want to be around a bunch of racist homophobic ableist assholes we we can agree right but what makes me feel comfortable or doesn't make me have a physical reaction to something is different from you. So understanding that 
and not dismissing somebody as being you're overreacting, you're being over emotional, you know, we have your period, like all of those things without not dismissing somebody's experience in a situation that is going to be different from yours. We need people at the top, the leaders to be able to be open to hear that and not dismiss it. That, those are those are some very key components and it a fish stinks from its head. <laughs> no, it does. That actually, that's really great. I actually want to jump in there because I feel like one of the things that happens is that the leadership is where we have problems, right? I feel like we have a lot of older white people in general. And I'm not going to even just blame it on the men. I'm going to be like, we have older people who have been taught in a specific sort of way about how we run and organize ourselves that has not lent us to a kinder, gentler world because of just the way capitalism works, right? Like we've all been sort of taught, like you all have to be on the grind. You all have to sort of do X, Y, and Z. And I think because of patriarchy, because of misogyny, I think that we all have it in our head that we have to run at a certain speed and we all have to function in a certain way. And I think that the only way that we're gonna have this cultural shift is if we have people at the top who are sort of in this old world, instead of trying to get them and re-educating them to do that, just step out and let other people who already understand this and who have different lived experiences start to run and become in leadership because then those, what will happen is if you start putting people who are more representative in places of leadership, that sort of effect will sort of immediately start to uh, affect everyone in the com company. So I want to always talk about the company that I work for, St. Louis Rep, now who now has Hana Sharif as the leader of this particular company. One of the things that I think everyone looks up to Hana Sharif because one, she's a mother, she just had a kid, and so she always as a woman of color understands and as a leader, as a director, understands what it means to take care of your artists and treat them like your family and treat them like human beings. And I think we have a, we have a generation of leadership that hasn't been taught that kind of kindness because of just because of the way the world worked, right? Before, you know, you know, before we were able to be softer and be kinder and all of that. I think that we just have a generation of leadership who are trying to do this and who are learning this, but I think that it's time to sort of make way for new leadership. And I feel like the sooner and the, the sooner that we make room for other people who look like your partner, like myself, like you, you know what I mean, in this place, as soon as we create different faces and we just make, a, you know, like one of the things that you said earlier, if you walk into a room full of white people, you get nervous. So do I. Like if I, even as, even even though I've gone to an Ivy League institution and I know people, you know, I have no problem walking, knowing that I'm oh, the only white person, black person in, in a lot of rooms, it still gives me pause that you all didn't think, hey, maybe we need more than one black person in this room, right? Or maybe we need more than one X, Y, and Z in this room, right? So those are things that we have to we have to sort of change that culture where the leadership, the people who are at the top look different so that, you know, little boys and little girls can look up to people like that and go, oh, I can do that kind of thing. And there are jobs for me there. You know what I mean? Like those are sort of things that we sort of need that um, in our world for me. The, those are great points. I, I love the idea of the pact and I'll get back to that in the framing of kind of a toolbox talk and a code of conduct. But I, but I also want to add that to your point, C-Max, and to you, Megan, the world is changing, right? I mean, forget all the bad stuff that's in the headlines all the time. If you are someone who is trying to professionally develop all the time and you're reading whatever materials you're reading, you will see a shit about leadership. You will see a, 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 a significant shift to authentic leadership and servant leadership. This is the new world order in, in a lot of circles. And, and I don't believe that the bully pulpit leadership that I grew up with, that were, you know, my mentors were that, uh, and I became that by default. And it, it's only through self-examination that hopefully I've changed a little bit, but the bully pulpit leadership doesn't sustain very long in today's society and in, in many of today's professional circles. Now, there are always going to be exceptions to every rule. But thankfully, it feels like there is a, a global shift towards this servant leadership and authentic leadership idea. So there's hope in that regard. Um, the idea of the pact and the code of conduct, I think is, I, th I think this is brilliant. I think, you know, look, 
is thinking from the head down, depending on what in circle we're working in, be it theater or artist or music tour, for example, and I'll use the music tour as my example, you know, that, that head really is, it's either the manager or the artist um, before it gets to me, the production manager or tour manager. So if I'm going to work for an artist who pays no regards to these things and won't accept that we want to put that packed out, well, maybe that tells me something about that artist and my ability to set up an environment of what I think is representative of what it should be. And maybe I make the choice uh, that I can't work for that artist. Now, that's a challenge coming out of COVID for, for, for almost all of us. But at the same time, it is, a, it is a choice we get to make. This manager is a misogynistic bigot. Um, I just can't work for this person. Uh, and, and hey, I want to put this packed out for the team because I think it serves your reputational risk well if we all behave this way. And by the way, we get to create a family, an organism that represents you and your art and your, you know, your desires. And if they don't want any part of that, then, you know, maybe it's not for me uh, or you or, you know, I, I think it's great. I think it's a great place to start. I, I wrote down uh, on the heels of your comment, Megan, it's actually a two-way pact. It's it's the organism, the, the communal tribe that is that represents that thing, theater, Broadway show, uh, dance show, you know, tour. Uh, it's the pack, the how we will all behave toward each other and toward the world. And then there's the leadership component of that pact. And, and that is the pledge that I will act on these things when they go wrong. Right. So I think we've got to capture that, too. We can't just say, hey, we're all going to we're all going to behave like this. There has to be. There has to be the, the leadership result if things aren't going the way the pack, um, the pack sets us up to be, right? There has to be some known punitive action and, the, and who's going to demonstrate that for when it's not what it's supposed to be, I think, right? Yeah, I think that you've got you've to also accept the fact that, and I kind of touched on this, where I might not feel comfortable saying something you shouldn't have to I, I think that's my that's what made me think of it sorry to interrupt you but that's what made me think of it because I, I know in previous conversations that we've had you you've said i'm i'm just freaking tired of it and i shouldn't be the one calling out people who are making me feel unsafe where's my freaking boss where's that tour manager where's that production manager that's allowing their team to behave that way or why is that production manager behaving that way or why does my boss just tell me to get over it? Yeah, I mean, right, that part. Oh. You know, like why? why? You know, yeah. why? Why can't we all? I, I think people also don't want to go where it's uncomfortable, and I think that that's a lot of the why, especially for white people. They are terrified of going where it's uncomfortable and potentially exposing themselves to somebody and I, I I find it super weak but I also I also see it all the time you know um it can be a lot of emotional labor putting yourself out there and standing against one of your own honestly let me tell you it can be a difficult sort of thing it yeah. just was one of those things I think for you know people of color we've been doing it for so long it, in our nature in our blood to be like no stop fight no stop being an asshole right like it's just like this is just what we've done all our whole lives right and right. I think that for for white people it just has become newer because you know you haven't had to have that introspection you know like it doesn't it hasn't had those eyes upon you and I think that's also part of the cultural shift that we're having that, you know, uh, there are people in the world, you know, I'm from Arkansas and like not everyone is awful and racist in Arkansas, right? Like it's, there are people in the world who have a great understanding of like, you know, there is equality in the world and there are people that, you know, that are born the same way and that exist in the same way and are humans. And then there are just people who have been raised wrong, right? Who have just who've been given the wrong idea of power, right? The, the issue that you were talking about earlier about like, how do we figure out, you know, what is the issue that we have in being able to speak up? 
It's because there's a lot of power. There's a lot of power dynamics that kind of go on in our industry that stop people from being able to say things, right? You know, we have this whole Scott Rudin thing and other producers that are going on about this uh, in our industry that are doing all of this damage because they have power, because they have lots of money, right? Because we've given them that power. We've given them that prestige and that money. And so there are people that don't, you know, there are actors, you know, there are lots of Karen Olivios who can't walk away from Moulin Rouge because it's their first time ever being on Broadway, right? They don't have that ability to be able to say, I have to step away from this, right? And like, that's the part of, that's the thing that we all have to work on, like making sure that we don't have people in positions of power that are continuing to perpetuate that kind of danger that's happening, right? There are stage managers that are out there that are also perpetuating that kind of danger that, you know, listen to the, the producers rather than listening to the actors. Like there are all, all kinds of people that are out there that uh, that are in our industry and you know they're not all white men right there are white women that are out there that are stage managers that are doing harm uh, to other you know other students out there that are all kinds of things that are going on so you know it's all over the place and so we all have to examine those uh, the 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 things that are going on and the people that are creating this harm and then we kind of have to retire them from our industry in one way or the other like we have to in that social agreement in that contract that we're talking about creating we have to go to places like the broadway union and go you can't have producers throw potatoes at our you know at actors like that that is a non-starter for us we have to go to Actors' Equity and go, these kind of people can't be allowed to hire and can't be given collective bargaining agreements because they have, you know, broken the rules. And, you know, because, you know, it, it becomes a lot of labor on all of us to try to monitor and police everyone, right? Like as a stage manager, I don't want to have to be the racial police for every show that I'm ever on, right? But I always get often hired as a person of color to be a person of color in management on shows. And it's like, it's a lot of work doing that. For me, I just go to other places that have people of color already in leadership. So I'm not the one doing all of the emotional lift, right? There are people who are being paid a lot more money to yell at a lot more people about being racist. So I don't have to do it, right? So that's sort of the world that I live in. But like not, you know, like you mentioned, Megan, not everybody's as lucky as you are. Like I, because of, you know, because of how much I hustle and because I also make pizza and sell clothes on the side have been able to do both right I've been able to do artists and theater and things like that but I've also been able to make a living just hustling because that's just who I am but not everybody is that way right like not everybody has the sort of the gumption and the fire below them to be able to just leave their family and go off and do these things right like you know I have a very unique story so I want it to be easier for other people who don't just pack up their shit and just leave the city to be able to go and get into theater right it shouldn't be that difficult you shouldn't have to like you know, live on the streets of Chicago to be able to want to survive, right? Like that, it shouldn't have to be that way for everyone. Everyone should, you know, have a good experience, have, you know, people that they see backstage in college, you know, that they understand, oh, there are backstage jobs that, that, that can be had backstage that are had, you know, that are occupied by people of color. There are, you know, there are stories that are outside of like Music Man that are being told that represent more people, you know, that are in the community of theater, right? That are being told. So there are ways that we can do that. And I think it just begins at the top so that people, you know, down below can start, you know, uh, feeling that they have someone to go to, someone that they can talk to, right? That's sort of the, always a problem. Like if you don't, you know, like if Megan is in a production where she doesn't see any other women, you know, if, if it's just a bunch of black guys in her production, she's not gonna feel safe, even though it's a room, not because of racial, but because it's a room of just men, right? She's not gonna feel like, she's still gonna question why is it all like black dudes in this room or why is it all X, Y, and Z in this particular room? And it's because we need diversity in all rooms and all leadership so that we all have different perspectives that help Help us uh, understand what's going on. Balance. Balance. Right? Yeah. Balance. It, it strikes me that one of the things we're talking about and one of the tools we're talking about is allyship, right? And and trying to trying to define for those old white guys uh, who do want to be allies what that looks like. You know, I, I, I'm not intentionally, you know, I'm not intentionally in this workspace trying to create it unsafely. How do I get better at doing that? Um, I, I remember the, the uh, Ellen Pompeo interview that she did. Like, I don't remember what TV show it was on, Entertainment Tonight or something like that, where she sat on the stage with women of color and she looked around the room behind the cameras and saw only old white guys and she called them out live on camera. 
And she was absolutely the right person to have done that because the other women of color who were on that stage, had they done it, they would have found their careers quieted, if not shuttered altogether, which is so wrong. So allyship, I think, is one of the tools we have right now in our toolbox, in addition to breaking this chain of causation for those who don't recognize foolishly or otherwise, we can judge all we want or not, that they're, that they're contributing to this behavior uh, by not saying anything or they're contributing to this behavior because they don't believe the words they're saying are impactful. So what does allyship look like? What, how, how can we inform the audience today? Uh, what steps can, can they be taking right now to be allies? Get educated, <laughs> please. Go read, listen to a podcast, go, go seek out information and, and the people in the world that are willing to talk about their experiences that are different from you. Support. Yeah, I, mean, I, I had to, I had to do that as a white woman. I had to do that. I had to go and I, I had, I had to read and watch you know, documentary and, and go through that to understand more. I, it doesn't come prepackaged for you. You have to go and, and literally go, all right, who, who out there is got a radically opposite experience from mine? Let's go see what that's about. Go, go learn about other people and what they've gone through super easy to dismiss somebody if you don't know really anything about their history. And I'm not just talking about what CMAX's history is. I'm talking about the history of black people in this country. Like, right. I can't understand his experience or even think that I'm gonna understand his experience without understanding how <laughs> incredibly messed up, and I wanna use an emphatic swear word right now, <laughs> but how incredibly messed up their history has been and the messages that have been sent to them. Well, and, and the and intentional continue. blockade, right. Yeah. The intentional blockade from having the same journey that we've had, right? That's- Correct, correct. Get uh, outside of your comfort zone. I think and you have to first- feel uncomfortable, you see something and you automatically are like, ooh, this make me nervous. I don't, you know, you need to explore that. Dig in. Yeah, you have to decide first that you don't want to be complicit in these actions, right? I don't want to behave that way. I don't want anybody in the room feeling as though I'm making them unsafe. You have to make that decision first, I think, and then look for the resources you've just described, right? If you travel the world and you do so as a traveler and not a tourist, I'll say that again, you do it as a traveler and not a tourist, then you're likely to learn that other societies with other views on the world are not as threatening as you were made to believe they were in school, that they're, that they're not these god-awful people that you were made to believe they were in school, and that by and large, we're all simply human, looking to live a life of love and happiness and tenderness, and to provide some level of success for ourselves that make us, that power us to do the next good thing. So decide to not be that person is step one. C-Max. I also think it's important to support black and brown arts in this, in this particular moment, because I think that what is happening is that a lot of money is going back to uh, creating art that stays in that same vein. You specifically, I keep talking about The Music Man, but things like The Music Man, you know, that are replacing other shows that are, that have more room for artists on Broadway, right? I think that uh, if you can do anything, you know, one, tell Black stories. If you're a theater maker and you own a theater or you have any kind of ability that you can bring in new stories rather than trying to tell the same old revivals, if you can do that, tell other stories, right? One, that that's one thing you can do, but then also as a human being, go and finding things in your own community uh, that are around that or online that you can support black efforts or brown efforts, right? There are all kinds of social justice issues that are going on, but then also there are black designers and there are black creators and there are black artists that are out there just working and hustling. And those little bitty forms of reparation, I think is a great form of allyship without telling everybody on Facebook that you 
you did X, Y, and Z, right? Like going and being like, you know what? I'm just gonna go and have dinner at this restaurant or I'm just gonna go and, you know, go read this book or do X, Y, and Z, you know, take in this piece of art and then enjoy other people's culture. That's, a, that's an even more interesting way of educating yourself from a real perspective, right? Like go get some black food, go get some, you know, go get some Asian food, you know, go get some real cultural and understand, you know, from the ground up what a culture is like, rather than just trying to be like, ah, la la la, you know, like this, you know, this sort of like superficial kind of understanding, right? Like I feel like, you know, uh, one of the things that we don't dig into is understanding people as a basis of, we're all humans just trying to survive on this spinning spinning rock, right? Like we're all just sort of trying to do the same thing. We just do it a different way, right? Because of where we come from, our food tastes differently, but it's all food, right? Like we're all the same sort of thing going in the same journey. We just look at it differently because of, you know, how close we are to the sun or like where, you know, like what shade we are, but it's all kind of the same. And I think that the more, you know, more people who have positions of power and people who have privilege, you know, there's all kinds of privilege, but people who have privilege use that for good, right? You know, like people like Karen Olivio saying, no, I don't want to be on Broadway anymore. I'd rather stay in Madison, Wisconsin and teach my students than be part of this toxic industry. Those are the kind of statements that we need from people in power to sort of like step in and go, we really do need to make their, you know, make some change happen, right? Um, that's just, that's the kind of allyship, you know, it's, it's great to, you know, sort of like change your social media and do all of these repostings and things like that. that that's one thing to do, right? That's a way of sort of supporting, but it, you know, I think we live in a capitalist society. So putting your dollars where your mouth is, like that's where, you know, your money where your mouth is. I think that that's another way of like really, really being able to help out the community in your own way, right? It's not saying, you know, go give everybody a million dollars, but like, you know, if you can, you know, support some artist somewhere, right? Like. Even that, that's, you know, one way of being able to sort of put it out there because that, that sort of uh, African-Americans aren't given generational wealth because we weren't allowed to collect it. So being able to help build more generational wealth for future generations is one way that we all can sort of help. And, it, you know, this, you know, as even though I'm a black person, I also say everything that I want for black people, I want for Asian people and Hispanic people and for uh, people, Middle Eastern people, because I feel like everyone comes with the same journey. And I feel like whoever was the last person to come to America is the, the first person that we're going to make fun of or we're going to start hate against. So like, you know, everyone and everyone down the line sort of needs that same sort of love and attention and sort of uh uh, fellowship, right? Everyone needs that sort of fellowship because like, you know, the one I think is the beautiful thing about our country is that there are so many different flavors that happen that make us beautiful and that we're leaning into that and understanding that that is the thing that we can do to, you know, make our industry stronger and embracing that. No so. question. Totally, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, as a, as a, as a primer, this conversation, considering it a primer to much deeper and much more impactful conversations to come, I think we've done a good job at opening this can of worms, right? And and it's a can that's needed to be opened for some time. And I don't mean that in the negative. I mean it. You know, look, we've got to start talking about it. It starts there. Um, uh, to your yeah, point about here's, here's the thing, man. Here's the one thing I'll say. It's not good enough to just talk about it anymore. You need to action. I'm, I'm, I'm shit full of the, the words and, and no action after them. And, and it's something that I feel like we've been going through for many, many years. And it, we need to keep chipping away at this. Like, this isn't just a one conversation topic. This no. is this is many, 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 many times we should be sitting down and bringing in others to hear their perspectives, to hear their words, to hear what they've experienced. Because I, I the only way we're gonna really see action is to keep bringing this up and bring it to the front. And, and then live our words, you know? Key. For me, it's, it's I'm in a position of power where I can create opportunities for people. And I feel so lucky to be able to do that. And I want to offer opportunity 
to anyone, anyone. It doesn't matter to me. I want to see what people have to bring because everybody that works for us brings something amazing to the table. They have something great that comes along with them. I, I feel like people in positions of power need to take a step backwards and look at the field that they've planted and see how balanced it is, you know? Those, that's, those are the most successful farms in the world are the ones that rotate their crops and, and spread their, their growth out amongst everything and not do the monocrop. It's, it's, it's so much similar in how we choose to live our lives. We no need, we need to, all of everything to contribute to it. And certainly in the entertainment industry, we need to start seeing uh, what CW was talking about. We need to see that push uh, of, of more people in positions of power in order to create more of that inclusivity and, and to have that big field of a, array of, of beautiful things, I think. So I'm willing there to is, keep talking because yeah. it, needs to, it needs to keep going. There is only one race that's human. Yeah, right? we're humans. The rest of we us all, are just- We all live, lose, yeah. well, you know? But the thing is, is that I, I worry that, there's two things I worry about. One thing I worry about is that we diminish the experience of people that are different from us. We can say we're all human beings, but C-Max is a black man and his life and mine are different. And I'm not going to see him as a negative being, but I'm going to see him as a black man for his experience. In order for me to, to make a connection with him, I feel that I need to see him for who he is and not say, oh, I don't, I don't see color. It's like, no, man, like this, this human has gone through all these things that have led him to this point because of who he is. Same thing for me. And to, to just kind of dismiss that we are, there are differences between us, but we are so very similar and we all share the same common goals, but we need to have an understanding of, of who everybody is around us. You know, I, I just, I, I, I worry that, that that's so easily dismissed because then it's super easy to, to dismiss inclusivity in the end because yeah, like, well, it, I hire a bunch of humans. It's like, yeah, you hired a bunch of, you know, you hired one black guy and six white dudes, you know? Yeah. Maybe it's more than just an understanding is we have to have, we have to value everybody's life journey, which I think is what you're trying to you're you're stating in response to my use of human race and i think that that's absolutely correct that's we each have a journey we bring to the table and it's understanding that our journey doesn't apply to the person across the table from me that person has their journey and if we're truly you know you described just prior to the human race comment you described the the essence of servant leadership and that is as a true servant leader your goal is to see everyone else grow and succeed and be, go beyond you. That's yeah. your goal. Get yes. in there and lead to the point where every person at the table can be better than they expected they were going to be when they first sat down at that table because you empowered that. Yes. That, yes. That's, that's all I care about. Yeah. Elevate. That's all I care about is elevating somebody and, and making them believe that they can, they can do something that maybe they didn't think they could or... Um, I, I, people ask me what I do for a living and I tell them I bring the dreams and visions of others to life. And it, it is more than just supplying audio equipment for a show. It's really like taking this person's idea of, of what's going to happen and making it come alive and making somebody's personal visions for themselves also come alive. And I think that the, the strongest leaders are the ones that that aren't thinking about themselves at all. They're thinking about everybody that they're leading and how they can help them get stronger and better. Somebody's going to have to take my position. Somebody's going to have to take my job. I wanna have a person that takes my job that's even better than me at doing this. That's even more open, that's even more knowledgeable, that has even more to offer. 
That's what I want. I want to help bring that person up. You know, I think that if, if more people were concerned about that and less about their wallet, we might actually have corporations that are, are, are caring and nurturing and give a shit about their people. And, and we wouldn't have such a drastic difference in, in wealth in this country in general. You know, I think we're picking at leadership here a lot and, and it really is in, in everything that we look at. So what the, the question is, is what can you control? You know, what part of it is yours? And what what you can do and what do you want you know well how do you want to be remembered yeah i want to be remembered as the person that gave as many people as possible an opportunity to show who they are now sometimes they don't do a great job of showing who they are other times it's amazing mind-blowing who these people are i i just i just don't ever want somebody to feel like they didn't have a fair shot. You know, that's all. I'm so grateful for the both of you. That, that feels like closing remarks, even though we didn't call for closing remarks. C-Max, did you want to uh, close in any way? Oh, that would be way too big of a task for me. Uh, I just am thankful to be able to have this conversation and have to be able to be off, be invited here to have this kind of conversation, to be able to continue uh, this, this march towards equality that I think that we are all working towards. So I think it's wonderful that everyone's out here doing the things. Uh, yeah. And if you ever look for ways to be able to contribute, uh, Black Theater Caucus is a non-for-profit organization. So we are taking donations. But other than that, I really, really am very, very grateful for being a part of this entire conversation. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful for both of you. And uh, I'm sorry to be the old white guy in the room, but I feel like the conversation's got to get had uh, in, in other circles as well. And I know that it's not an easy subject. And I, um, I, I, I'm genuinely grateful for you to be here today. Thank you, Megan. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Love Thank you, you guys. Max.